ethical issues, one man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. Sally, 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 Sally. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 9 of YDHTY. This is the podcast for the exhausted majority who occupy the middle seat in American politics, and I want to thank you for listening. Now, if this is your first time here, welcome, and if you dig what you hear today, please tell one friend. This podcast grows by word of mouth, and your contribution helps. Now, well before our withdrawal from Afghanistan, our efforts in the region drew comparisons of America's second longest war, that being Vietnam. And in the second in our series on America's withdrawal, I invited Ken Hughes back on the show to help us see what parallels exist between the two conflicts. Ken is a historian at the University of Virginia's Miller Center of Public Affairs and one of the foremost experts on Nixon's presidency. He is the author of Fatal Politics, a book that outlines Nixon's use of the war for political gain. And if you want to learn more about that, you should check out the episode we did together back in June. Now, the interesting thing about this conversation Most of the similarities between Vietnam and Afghanistan have more to do with what was going on at home than what was going on overseas. And Ken helped me understand the thinking that gets America into forever wars and the icebergs we'll need to navigate to avoid them in the future. I will be back at the end with my final thoughts. As always, I'll I'll set the audience up with disclaimers about noise. It is back to school season. Everybody who's listened to this podcast knows I have four children, three of whom, like their dad, are hyperverbal, and they hang out with a lot of talkative kids who are going to be running in and out of this house. So you may hear that. Ken, you, on the other hand, are you're in a fairly quiet spot. Uh, you know, maybe some planes flying over, cleaning crews outside. All right, we'll forgive them. And it, it should also be noted your description of. Weather in our nation's capital around this time of year was absolutely brilliant. August turns the nation's capital into the hollows of Satan's gym socks. That's it. That's it. That was so. That has since passed, dear listener. Yes. So we're we're good there. But it is seventy-two sunny and blue skies. Beautiful, beautiful. So, um, you know, I invited you here to talk a little bit about our recent withdrawal from Afghanistan. And for those of you who maybe are listening for the first time, you know, you and I spoke a few months back, we really focused on Nixon. And uh, a big part of your work is focused on how Nixon used the war to political ends. So I was very, very interested in getting your take on what you see as the parallels between what we're experiencing now with this withdrawal from Afghanistan and what we experienced back uh, when we left Vietnam. So you know, I guess to start things off, as you kind of digest everything that's happened, what do you see, what stands out to you as maybe one or, or the few kind of biggest parallels between what's going on now and what happened then? I'm kind of marveling at how the politics of war is a constant, no matter what we go through. And what 
one assumes we would learn from experience. But watching the coverage of Afghanistan, I can see why the presidents I've studied, uh, Nixon, and right now I'm writing about John F. Kennedy, I can see why they dreaded getting pinned with the blame for losing a war. Because recently, the reason I was thinking about August in Washington was not only that I was experiencing it, but because I was writing about the Kennedy campaign in the August in August of 1960, which uh, was a in, in terrible shape at that time. Uh, Gallup poll came out and said that Nixon was six points ahead of Kennedy, and it was all because Robert Kennedy commissioned this special poll by uh, this organization called the Simulmatics Corporation that month, and the 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 concept, the promise of Simulmatics was that. It would not just do polling, it would run a simulation of how various strategies would work. And, uh, and, and tell the Kennedy campaign, this will help you get elected or this won't. And Sinomatic said, the thing you got to do is to attack in a partisan way the Republican foreign policy record. Um, if you do that, then you can catch up with Nixon because right now people are thinking that Richard Nixon is somebody in whom they have much more confidence. And reading this, Paul, they talk about like, they're advising the Kennedys, it's not that you have to take any particular position on foreign policy. Most Americans don't have positions on foreign policy. What they're looking for is somebody who can convey strength and knowledge and in whom they can have confidence. And now we're watching the television now, and for most of this year, Joe Biden has looked very competent, knowledgeable, and strong enough to pass some important legislation. But this month, coming out of Afghanistan, he doesn't look strong, he doesn't look competent, and the nation is focused on these images of an American foreign policy failing. I was born in 64, so I view Vietnam primarily like as an historical event rather than something I lived through because I don't remember most of it. But the more I look back on Vietnam, most of the time during the Vietnam War, politics is not about Vietnam. Even though it's controversial, even though it's very divisive, people look away from it and, and focus on other things to a great extent. And Nixon was particularly astute about that, uh, you know, just whenever he had connected himself with the subject of Vietnam, it was just to go on television and say, we're bringing more home, we're bringing more people home, we're on schedule to get out of there, and we're not losing. If we go home any faster, we're going to lose, which was deceptive. I mean, he, he knew he was going to lose no matter when he came, brought the troops home, and he kept the war going so that he wouldn't lose until after he was safely reelected. So morally, his, his uh, approach to Vietnam was, in my view, terrible. You know, some folks who, who haven't done the required reading and, you know, in our last episode, one of the things I learned from you is that, you know, in Nixon's reelection campaign in 72, he actually knew the war was unwinnable and he knew what was coming and made a political calculation effectively that if I can keep the war going until after reelection, 
I won't lose. And then this inevitable disaster would happen. Of course, that came at the cost of 20,000 American lives. Yeah. And hundreds of thousands of more Vietnamese lives. So, you know, it's like from a from a policy standpoint, you can ask, what could Biden do uh, to change things? And he could have, you know, he if he had taken the Nixon way of doing things, he could have just uh, tried to draw out the negotiations for all four years of his first term. The Taliban would not have just taken that because they made a deal with Donald Trump and uh, they were continuing their war. You know, they still have tens of thousands of casualties of Afghan casualties. They were just laying off the Americans because the Americans had told them we were getting out. Um, you could have prevented, I mean, not prevented, but forestalled the scenes that we have been seeing this month. And that might have been an astute thing to do politically. I think in one way, it's educational for us to see what happens when a foreign policy uh, of the United States fails. Um, the failure, obviously, has been 20 years in the making. It's George W. Bush's failure, and it's Barack Obama's failure, and it's Donald Trump's failure. And just at the tail end, it's Joe Biden's. But since the failure is appearing on everybody's screen at the same time, and Joe Biden is president, his approval ratings are sinking drastically. When people, one of the questions we get asked all the time is, why didn't presidents just say, hey, we can't win in Vietnam, so we're not going to go? Um, or after they've seen that they were not winning, why don't they just bring them home? Because as we know, withdrawal is popular. Uh, even now, a majority of Americans favor withdrawal from, from Afghanistan. Um, the thing is, while they want the troops to come home, a large number of voters, enough to seriously affect the approval rating of any president, blame the president when something goes wrong. And we don't know, you know, we don't see that something is going wrong until you know, the fall of Saigon, <laughs> or shortly before, uh, and now, you know, the fall of Kabul. And um, that that political price is possibly, I don't mean to be alliterative, prohibitive. You know, one of the things you mentioned that really surprised me earlier on is that Vietnam was really in the back of people's minds because... You know, I was born at the very tail end of the war, so I have, I have zero memory of it. And it, from all accounts, when you talk about the, the late 60s, all you hear is the anti-war movement. All you hear is Vietnam. Could you, could you kind of dive into that a little bit and elaborate on what the politics were? Because I, I think to, to me and I think to a lot of people, the perception is that Vietnam consumed everything. Vietnam was huge. I mean, it was the both it was the biggest campaign issue in 68 and the biggest campaign issue in 72. But for most of that time, it wasn't always a the top story on the news. It was it competed with other things and I think most Americans 
the way that by the time Nixon was president, the idea was most Americans thought the war was a mistake. Yes. At the same time, most Americans did not want to lose it. They wanted to get out with uh, what they were promised by both Richard Nixon and by the Democrat in 1968, Hubert Humphrey, which was peace with honor, which was presumably we'd get out, but South Vietnam would not collapse around our ears as we were going out. Um, and there was continual sort of tactical measures and countermeasures between the Republicans and the Democrats during those years. But um, they both sides tried to minimize Vietnam until McGovern became the nominee in 72. And then he ran a campaign that, in my opinion, was very uh, kind of self-defeating by claiming that uh, the only way to end the war was to elect McGovern. Otherwise, Nixon would just keep it going in perpetuity because he would never let South Vietnam fall, which completely relieved Nixon of the responsibility of, of having to explain how South Vietnam could survive without American troops, which most Americans suspected it could not. And most Americans were right. And the, uh, the State Department and the CIA and the Pentagon agreed. So while Vietnam, you know, I don't want to say it, it, it was unimportant, um, most of the time Nixon was able to keep it on the back burner as long as he could convince people that he was getting out. He could focus them on other things that were more popular uh, eventually, like his opening to China and uh, his summit in the Soviet Union, but also, you know, other stuff. In 1969, even though Vietnam casualties were very high. Nixon had a very high approval rating. And in 1972, he also had a high approval rating, in part because he deliberately turned attention away from Vietnam. Johnson in 65 and even in 66 tried to devote as little public attention to Vietnam as possible. His escalations, he didn't try to justify or defend on TV. And a lot of people held that against him. They said, you know, well, if he had explained what he was doing and why, there'd be more support for the war. But again, I try to run a, the, the counterfactual simulation. And he had a whole lot of support in 1965 when he was just sending troops quietly to Vietnam without drawing too much attention. And uh, the more attention that the war got, the, the more his leadership was questioned, both from the left, whom we tend to remember in history because they were so visible in the streets with protests. But Johnson saw the biggest challenge coming from the right, where, you know, they were saying, escalate, just hit them with everything we've got, win the war and get out. And Johnson couldn't do that because there was no escalation that would win the war. So he was just trying to figure out a way to to not lose for his presidency. It seems to me, and this is, I mean, we can get into the policy side of things in a bit, but from the political side, it seems to me what you're saying is on the whole, the American electorate is willing to tolerate the continuation of a war and the loss of life that will follow more than they're willing to concede that maybe getting into that war wasn't such a good idea in the first place. Right. We saw when um, Barack Obama was president, uh, the Afghanistan war was 
unpopular at the beginning and he did a big surge that didn't work. And it was unpopular as he was reelected and it was unpopular in his second term. But it wasn't that big a deal, we say, because casualties weren't that that high. Um, and that's important. The level of casualties does affect the amount of interest. But we didn't see the anti-war uh, forces in America insisting that Obama bring the troops home. People seemed content to let it go on the back burner. There's there's a lot of disagreement, like among political scientists. I'm not a political scientist. I'm a historian uh, about whether foreign policy even matters in elections. And uh, it's like the politicians think it does <laughs> uh, at times, you know, like Nixon was sure of it. and Kennedy was sure of it. If you look at the Kennedy campaign from 1960, it is all I mean, it is so heavily uh, foreign policy oriented. And it's also very hawkish. It's we don't have enough missiles. The Soviets are going to have more missiles than us, which was untrue. We had many more than them and they would never the ultimately they would tie us. And that's it. Um, and he was also uh, talking about the loss of Cuba as being this major threat to our hemisphere and to uh, America in the Cold War. And that worked. <laughs> you know, it, it really it, it reached people. The Simulmatics Corporation also did another simulation in which they had the Democrat say we should resolve all our problems with uh, the communists through negotiations. And uh, the Republicans take a more hawkish uh, stance and they tried to figure out what effect that would have on the outcome. And they they said if the, the campaign had gone that way, it would have been 53% for Nixon and 47% for Kennedy. Uh, again, the, the computers that we are talking to each other on now are much more powerful than the computers that they had then. And uh, I have many, many doubts about how good their simulations were. But it rings true. And if you look at, you know, people who the experts in politics of the time, uh, like Kennedy and Johnson and Nixon, they all viewed losing a country to communism as something that would make it extremely hard for them to win reelection. Um, they saw they remembered the Democrats being blamed for the loss of China, where we weren't even at war. I mean, we were just providing some aid and advice. And uh, in 46, they were still, Democrats were paying for the loss of Eastern Europe to uh, Joseph Stalin at the end of World War II. So when people say this isn't going to have any effect, I think people do make some decisions based on foreign policy. And I think the 1960 report, you know, that 60-year-old report catches it pretty well. It's like most people don't have firm opinions about specific foreign policies. If you ask people, what should we do with China? Most people just don't know, other than they want us to be strong and competent and do the best we can. And so I'm thinking if Joe Biden does not look strong and competent now, um, something could happen in foreign policy between now and uh, 2024, or between now and the congressional midterms in 2022, that could make a big difference or not. I mean, this could just be the thing that defines him in foreign policy. And uh, that that winds up weighing on him the way the hostage crisis weighed on um, Jimmy Carter or Vietnam weighed on Lyndon Johnson. 
40%, folks. That's the number of people in America who don't identify with either major party, bigger than either of them in terms of voters. 60% is the number of Americans who feel another major party is needed. Both are a signal something's wrong, and both are a signal Americans are looking for something more, and that is why you listen to You Don't Have to Yell. Now, nothing's going to change until we open up the two-party system to real political competition. And in the right numbers, we can make this happen. So here are two ways you can help. Number one, if you dig the content on YDHTY and you know someone else who would, please share this show with them. The goal of YDHTY is not just to push for electoral reform, but to get the center back into the conversation And this podcast grows by word of mouth. Number two, if you want to take action in your state, visit rankthevote.us. It's an organization focused on growing the ranked choice voting movement in all 50 states. And while there are no shortages of ways to reform elections in this country, ranked choice voting is by far the most practical and effective way to make elected officials accountable to the majority of voters, not just the parties. 2020 is going to be a decade of change, and I hope you'll choose to join me in making the change for the better. And now, back to the episode. One thing I, I, I wanted to ask you about as well is when we last spoke, you know, one of the things you talked about is how this origin of the Republican Party being branded as the party strong on defense and strong on patriotism really came about. So for those who are unaware, you know, Nixon in his reelection really hammered home the idea of him being tough on foreign policy and tough on crime. Those were kind of the two things. And that mantra and that that branding really stuck with the Republicans, right? And the interesting thing that I saw is that when we got to post-September 11th, when we got to the point where we were declaring war on Iraq and declaring war on Afghanistan and effectively writing Bush and the presidents that followed a blank check to do what they wanted, there was no resistance because the Democratic Party feared that branding so much. Do you feel like now with this withdrawal from Afghanistan and with the fact the war has been so grossly unpopular, do you feel that this might close that era in a way? And that neither party can really brand itself in that manner anymore, anymore because we've just we don't want to get into another conflict like that. If if we worked the way democracy is supposed to work, in which we <laughs> observe the results of policies and learn lessons from them and think critically about how these policy results came to be, then sure we should learn. Here's what I think people should know. The the deal Donald Trump made and that Joe Biden implemented was it doomed Afghanistan to being taken over by the Taliban. We did, Biden did much, much better in getting people who helped us out of Afghanistan than Richard Nixon and Gerald Ford even tried to do with Vietnam because 
with Vietnam, Nixon insisted that he got peace with honor and that the deal he had made with the North was good enough for the South to have a chance to survive. So he did not really try bringing people home during his presidency. And Ford start, got started very late. So most of the people who helped us, the people in the South Vietnamese government, the people in the South Vietnamese army, were stuck in Vietnam. And they had to deal with being arrested, being sent to re-education camps, being persecuted for a long time while America did diplomacy in order to help as many migrate as possible to the U.S. and to other other nations. I, so, like, from a policy standpoint, Biden could make a really strong argument that he did the best that could possibly be done. But <laughs> political history shows me that logic just doesn't matter. <laughs> it's like we look at the... Uh, the takeover of Eastern Europe by the Russians. We hate that. We hate that, you know, the Iron Curtain descended over half of Eastern Europe. And those countries were dominated by the Soviet Union and had to live under communism for 40 years, more than 40 years, 45 years. And Harry Truman and the Democrats were blamed for that in 46. Um, and even for, for years afterwards, mainly because he didn't try to stop it. But what could he do? <laughs> you know? I mean, we, we forget. We feel, when you think of all the casualties that the American allies inflicted on the Germans uh, during World War II, it was one quarter of the casualties that the Russians inflicted on them. They did four times as much damage to the German war machine as we did, you know, America and Britain together. It's something we don't talk about because, you know, we talk about winning World War II. But the point of that, I'm, I'm, nobody ever came up with a way for us to keep Eastern Europe from being dominated by the communists. Nonetheless, the Democrats get blamed for losing Eastern Europe. Same goes for losing China. Nobody came up with a way to save China, but the Democrats were in charge of the, they had the White House and the House and the Senate at the time. Um, and the Republicans just insisted that if we had tried harder, we could have done something. And that kind of argument works because you, you, you go to the polls and the Democrats are saying to you, look, some problems are just too big. <laughs> you know, we, we tried everything we could in China. We told them to get into a coalition government with uh, Mao Zedong in order to you know, keep from losing everything and they wouldn't do it. We tried giving them aid, but aid wasn't enough. So we cut our losses and got out. And uh, really, there's nothing we can do about it. We're very sorry, but a quarter of the world came under communist domination. <laughs> and that was it. And there was, we were helpless to stop it. Now that, you know, is not something that's going to make you stand up and cheer. <laughs> but if the other side says, look, the Democrats are weak. They gave up. They're quitters. They're defeatists. They stopped trying when trying might have made a difference, when we could have done something. They surrendered. They say they're helpless. Well, maybe they are, but we're not helpless. Unlike the other guys, we won't quit. And that works. I mean, that's, that's an argument that 
is it's appealing on a gut level. The idea is not some problems are too big for us, but that some politicians are too small for our problems and they don't have enough faith in America's ability to solve problems. And, you know, I think Thomas Jefferson said Americans will always choose hope. <laughs> you know, it's a hopeful argument saying, you know, the problem isn't structural. It isn't that we don't have the power needed to liberate Eastern Europe or keep the communists from taking over China. The argument is just, you know, the other the other side's argument is, no, the, the guys who were running things are weak. Put us in and we'll do better. It's interesting you say that. I think we've always, we've certainly always been a hopeful people. I do believe that from from the from the beginning. I think you you had to to exist and to survive in this country. Was it World War II that gave us the impression we could just go in and fix any problem in the world with our army, or is that something that existed prior? I think World War II did a lot to give ourselves give us the self image that we can solve the world's biggest problems because if you look at it one way we made the difference in solving the world's biggest problems nazi germany and uh imperial japan no one says the wars could have been won without us but you know we saw that we could mobilize the entire country both the population and the industrial plant um, could get everybody pulling together uh, with a, an extremely popular cause. I mean, it, World War II was a divisive issue before the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. But once the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor and Hitler foolishly declared war on us, then it united left and right uh, in uh, going to war to defeat them. And we came out of the war on top of the world. We were the most powerful nation in history and the most powerful nation in the world. And it was a huge change. We were not that in the 1930s. We were struggling. You know, we were, we were struggling just to survive our own domestic issues. But in the 1940s, America's, you know, the army came home and America discovered it was the strongest uh, country in the world and it soon became the most prosperous again. And I think that probably did give people a great sense of confidence uh, that we could do it, especially since our propaganda, it really upplayed heroism. And there was real heroism. There was a lot of it. And it downplayed other things that were important factors, like the contribution that Stalinist Russia made to winning the war. And they were indispensable. I mean, it's like we, we think of uh, World War II as a fight between good and evil, but it was, you know, it was also a fight between Stalin and Hitler, you know, <laughs> and that was a huge part of the fight. That was certainly a lesser of two evils battle right there. Right, right. Um, do you know, I'll, I'll tell you, so I used to deliver pizzas when I went to school and there was this guy who delivered pizzas with me, Ed. I don't know what his real name was, but he was from Russia. He was in the Russian army. And my first day on the job, he lectured me about how America didn't win World War II. We just provided air support. And he went <laughs> on and he did not stop until his order came up. And then I think I made a delivery, came back, and he started it all over again. He wanted to make sure everybody knew that Russia won. 
And I think if you look at the numbers too, you know, while we were deciding how we were going to invade mainland Europe and while we were deciding if we were going to get involved, there were millions and millions of Russians who died as a result of that. You know, I remember hearing this story when we dropped the bomb on uh, Hiroshima, Stalin thought, looked at all the casualties, looked at how many people died, and then he divided the number of Russians who had died in World War II by that amount to determine how many bombs Russia could take. And that was his, I mean, you want to talk about political calculation, you know, we're talking about American presidents. This guy had calculated, they probably don't have enough bombs to take us down. That was Stalin's calculus. But it's interesting too, because, you know, one of the things I asked you earlier was, is this the end of the ability for you as a politician to brand yourself as stronger on defense, as being the person who's going to be able to competently go out and punch that other person in the eye? I wonder if the whole, if, if this concept that emerged in World War II is really coming to an end. I pray that it's coming to an end, but it has definitely become harder. Trump, by making that deal with the Taliban, made it much, much harder for the Cheney wing of the Republican Party to be the identity of the Republican Party. We certainly will see now what we saw in the 1970s, which was a great wariness of getting involved militarily. And that, that really didn't get lost until Newt Gingrich took over in the House in the 1990s. And the Republicans leaned very heavily into the Vietnam syndrome idea, which was that we didn't lose Vietnam. The Democrats just snatched defeat from the jaws of victory. And we see Republicans trying to do that now with Afghanistan. And I think they're doing a much poorer job than Nixon did in setting that up and that they will not succeed nearly as much. But we will definitely see a stabbed in the back myth. We already are seeing a stabbed in the back myth arising on the right in which, you know, just everything bad that has happened as a result of withdrawal is something that some Republicans will try to blame on Joe Biden. I think that looks much more partisan now than it did in the 1970s when, despite the divisiveness of the Vietnam War, you still saw large majorities uh, supporting hawkish candidates. To summarize it briefly, Lyndon Johnson did campaign on defending Vietnam in 64, and he did go into the election having bombed North Vietnam, which was something Kennedy hadn't done. And in 68, though it was close between Humphrey and, and Nixon, uh, Nixon and Wallace's vote together was a very, very big majority of, of hawkish votes. And you saw that majority reassert itself in 72 with Nixon getting close to 60% in his reelection. So, you know, there was much stronger support for the Vietnam War uh, being fought at a fairly intense level uh, than there is for the Afghanistan War being fought at a very, very low level since uh, the end of Obama's surge. So I'm hoping, I'm hoping that 
the result of this will be the American people saying, like, you know, we don't win these. It's not that one party is losing them. It's that neither party knows how to win. <laughs> and, you know, Trump tacitly admitted that. Uh, Bush sort of showed that with his very sorry performance in his second term. Obama was not able to salvage it. And Biden decided, look, we're, we've done enough. We're just not, we're, we're going to finally get out because we cannot do better than get out. To, to, to build on that statement, anyone who's listened to this podcast knows, I, I think I can probably count on one hand the number of times I have given Donald Trump credit for anything. The one thing I will say is in looking at the dynamics of the Republican Party back during the end of the Vietnam War, it was a lot clearer how a more hawkish Reagan could emerge. It was a lot clearer how somebody could take on that mantle and ultimately keep us or keep this sort of militaristic view of foreign policy alive. You know, Trump in 2016 campaigned against that very principle. And in a lot of ways, I think might have exercised that from the Republican Party. So I'll echo your hope that with the party most likely to pursue a military intervention in the future, no longer having that option, we may be in a period where America redefines itself with any hope. Because if we survive this one, and, and, and I truly mean that, if we as a nation are not hobbled by the trillions of dollars we have spent and racked up in debt over the last 20 years and the number of relationships we've corroded, we certainly won't be able to pull it off again. That is the most cynical array of sunlight I think I have ever been, I've, I have ever shown. So cynical arrays of sunlight are I have I look for them. I mean, I, I'm one of the people who thinks that like the reason that there has been no superpower war in my lifetime is not that we and Russia have chosen the very best leaders. <laughs> That's not it. It's that we know that if we go to war we lose too much. And so the, you know, the, it's wisdom to know what you can do and what you can't. It's greater wisdom to know what you should, what you should do and what you shouldn't. And uh, it's, so hopefully we're learning something about only fighting fights that we need to fight and ones where we've got genuine uh, interests, national interests at stake and where we're acting in self-defense. And I hope also that we're learning about the politics of war, which is that presidents are afraid to end wars when they know they're going to lose them. And, you know, that we see that in the 60s with Johnson and Nixon, and I think to an extent Kennedy, the evidence isn't quite as good. And that to me is uh, the story of our or, you know, America's longest war, which is Afghanistan, which is that first George W. Bush didn't know how to end it without losing it. And then Obama didn't know how to end it without losing it. Then Trump said, OK, I'll end it before the election and get credit for it and lose it after the election. And they, when they can't, you know, hold me accountable for it. And now we're going to see, you know, whether a president can can survive openly losing a war.
I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, please consider leaving it a review. We need to make sure more weirdos like you are in the conversation. I like weirdos, by the way. Now, you can find Ken's book, Fatal Politics, on Amazon and find other resources on Ken's work at ydhty.com. Just click episodes in the upper right-hand corner and ye shall find. Now, what surprised me the most about our conversation was learning that the Vietnam War wasn't as ubiquitous in the minds of Americans during Nixon's presidency as it's often portrayed in the media. The public was actually fairly ambivalent, even with the presence of a draft and even with high casualties. And what's interesting is how consistent Americans' reactions are. We seem to be able to tolerate wars that go on forever, regardless of the casualties, more than we'll deal with the thought of losing. And it effectively makes us double down on losing bets at the cost of lives. And I agree with Ken's statement that Americans are eternally hopeful. And it's my hope that we can channel this optimism to try and find ways to fix things without breaking them first. Because if you go back through the history of American-led interventions, the best outcome, the best, was the Korean War. And that ended in a stalemate. The war is technically still going on right now. Now, in our last episode, Banari Poulton and I posed the question, why comfortable people seek purpose in terrorism? And I've got a guest next week who can answer that question. We'll be diving into the subject of extremism, what draws people to it, and how to best tackle the threat of extremism at home now that we're done fighting it abroad. Hope you'll listen. As always, music, courtesy of QuellerTac, YDHTY's editorial advisor is the admirable Admiral Adam Yaffe. YDHTY is produced in loving memory of the big Gino, Jason Putney. Until the next, this is Dan Sally. Uh, bye-bye.